0: Well, we can turn back to the passage you read there from Nehemiah, and we can read again the first uh, two verses of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. What comes to mind when we think of a city? If we were thinking of London, what would come to mind? Buckingham Palace? House of Commons, the underground, (laughs) if that's the kind of thing we think of, we've got the wrong perspective. Because what's important about London is the people, the people who are in it. If we think of the church, what comes to mind? Our history, our organizations, our plans, all are important, but what actually matters is the people. When we think of Nehemiah's time, what comes to mind about the city of Jerusalem? They've rebuilt the wall, as we have seen. They have restructured the worship system since they had discovered that the Feast of Tabernacles had not been kept in the proper way since the days of Joshua. And they determined to do what the Bible said, so they restructured it. They also had all engaged in a covenant that they would be the Lord. Was that sufficient for Nehemiah? What difference did it make to the city to have had these three things done? Well, unless there were people in the city, it wouldn't have made any difference at all, would it? They would just be one-off events. In order for uh, Jerusalem to function, there had to be people in the city. And obviously there's lessons about that, and I would like us to think about that today. We can see in verse 2 that Jerusalem is called the Holy City. This particular way of describing a city doesn't happen very often. But I suppose it is important to note the context in which it is so described. And here it is called the Holy City in connection to people going to live there. And I suppose we should wonder why is it called that when people are going to live there? Because we may assume that since all of them are sinners that they might have a detrimental effect on the on the city itself. Well, like <clears> I... <throat> Obviously, we don't really know why it's called the Holy City, but uh, we can make some suggestions. And one is, why was it holy? And it wasn't holy because of the people who lived there. It's holy because God lived there. God's presence was, in a symbolic way, uh, located in the temple. There, in the Holy of Holies, in a symbolic manner, he dwelt there as the king of the people. And I think Nehemiah is saying to his readers that those who are going to live in the city were going to live with God. And of course, that's a great privilege, isn't it? To live with God. It's also a rather daunting prospect I mean, if if I was told I was going to go to London and then discovered I was going to live in Buckingham Palace, that would be quite daunting, wouldn't it? Thankfully, it's never going to happen. But but, um, it would be quite daunting, wouldn't it? But nothing in comparison to living with God. But nehemiah got this vision of restoring the city. A vision that's entirely biblical. Because in a real sense that's the whole point of salvation. Restoring the city of God. And at the end of the day, that's what heaven's going to be, isn't it? The city of God. I want us to think briefly about six things that I think this passage we read tells us to do, and I'll just tell you what they are. There's an arrangement, there's acceptance, divine arranging, there's deliberate acceptance, there's a delighted acknowledging, and then there's a division of activity, and then what I've called desirable anonymity. And lastly, a divine awareness. Divine arranging. How is the city going to be built? How is it going to be populated? How are they going to do it? There's 50,000 people living in Judah at this time. And they decide that one-tenth of them should go and live in Jerusalem. And the way they decided to do it was by the casting of lots. Now casting lots was a very common practice in the Old Testament, although it's never mentioned again in the Bible after the, de- <coughs> after the events prior to the day of Pentecost. But the whole point of casting lots was trusting in God, wasn't it? It was a means of, it of saying that God will provide, God will identify uh, what We want him to, what he wants us to do, and so on. And out of the 50,000, there was, in a sense, they just, I don't know how they did it, but they went through that particular group of people and decided who the 5,000 were. God told them. They asked for God to arrange it, we might say, and he did. Straightforward. Now of course, when it comes to us building a city, we can't use divine lots. We don't know who even to put into whatever system was available for making lots. But we've got ways our are just as effective, and one of them of course, Graham highlighted it for us in the children's talk is prayer. And as we were reminded, and as George Mueller showed, God can do the impossible. Prayer. If I am serious about building a city, the city of God, I will pray and of course so will you. The depth of our seriousness, the degree of our concern is revealed in our prayers. Something else we can do is just as effective as casting the lots. It's telling the gospel. Paul reminds us the gospel is the power of God. He doesn't say sometimes the gospel is accompanied by the power of God. Which of course is true. But that's not what he says. Instead he says the gospel is the power of God. Almost telling us That the way God shows his power is in the gospel. And I suppose the same comment I made a minute ago about prayer is true about the gospel. If I am serious about the building, the city of God, I will speak about the gospel. I don't mean just up here. I mean everywhere. And that would be true of all of us, wouldn't it? How does God convert people? By the gospel. Divine arranging. God has provided how to do it and His methods our best. Divine arranging. Then secondly, this deliberate acceptance. Uh, The 5,000 that were chosen, one out of 10, well, we're told about them there, that um, they willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. I mean, no doubt there was a an element of sacrifice there, wasn't there? I mean, they must have had their properties in the villages that we read about in the chapter uh, built around the city. And they had to go into this city that was basically a ruin. They just had the wall built. There were some wealthy people in the city and, and they had erected their own houses, but... Apart from that, there's not much. And yet they volunteered, they offered themselves uh, to go into the city and they are to be commended. But as we think about um, this um, dedication that they made, I'd like us to think of Two passages of Paul as mentioned in the Bible. Sorry, one by David and one by Paul. In Psalm 110, we're told there in verse three that the psalmist says, "Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments." The day of his power. What is that? That's the time that Jesus reigns. For The Father says to him, come and sit at my right hand. That's his day of power. He's highly exalted, given the name above every name, all power in heaven and earth given to him. And as David looks ahead to this wonderful reign of the Savior, he imagines all this army of volunteers clothed in the garments of salvation your people shall offer themselves freely in the day of your power." So right throughout the reign that he has, and it's been going on now for 2,000 years, and we we don't know how much longer it will go on for, but for however long it goes on, this is going to be one of the features of it, that his people will offer themselves freely in the day of his power. And that's a, a wonderful description of them because they recognize who he is. He's in charge. And there's not an inch of space that's not under his control. So wherever they find themselves, at any given time, that is the particular place at that moment where they should be offering to be his servants. And the prophecy is that they'll do it. And since they're likened to an army, uh, of volunteers, they possess the Saviour's power to serve him. It's a, it's a challenge to us, isn't it? Am I a volunteer? Today, did I give myself to the King's service? Today, did you give yourself to the king's service? The other reference is there in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, fully unacceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The mercies of God on which all this dedication is based, he has spent the previous chapters of that letter describing. And he has pointed out to them how God has elected them, justified them, adopted them, sanctified them, and will yet glorify them. And he says in the light of the, these mercies, the only appropriate response is to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. we could almost put it this way, that God not only shows his power in salvation, but he shows his power in our dedication. And we just present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And it is kind of interesting that he implies that they are to do it together these believers in Rome, that together they'll be a living sacrifice. Not just only that individually they'll, be, they'll have this um, contribution, but that together they will be so dedicated to God that even the capital city will be aware of their presence. And no doubt, when they read these words of Paul, they would have accepted his challenge. But that same challenge comes to me, when it comes to you. And it doesn't really matter if at some stage, say for example in the year 2000, I made some kind of dedication. What actually matters is what I'm doing today. The past is past. What matters is today and tomorrow. And that we are going to take our place on the altar, as it were, that fully alive, living sacrifices. These men and women, children as well, who are selected to go and make this sacrifice and go and live in Jerusalem. They did it. And then there's this delighted acknowledgement. As we're told there in verse 2 that all the other people, the nine-tenths, they blessed the ones that went into the city. They spoke. To bless somebody is to speak well of them. It's like a gigantic commissioning service, isn't it? 45,000 bless the 5,000. And they commended them for doing this. Commendation is a, an interesting thing. When Paul writes his letters, he commends people. He commends the church in Philippi. He says to them there in his letter that no church has supported him like they did, even from the beginning. And that commendation has. Been repeated about that particular church right down to the present day. And it's all because he commended them. But well, we know they were a, a church that was determined to be participators in the spread of the gospel. But he also commends individuals in that letter, he commends Timothy. He says he has no one like-minded. And of course, Timothy had his his own personal frailties. But his personal frailties were no reason for him not to be like-minded. I have no one like-minded like him, he says. But he also commends Epaphroditus, the man who carried the gift from the church in Philippi to Paul in Rome, and he said to him he had nearly died in doing it. But commendation, surely it's something that should mark all of us. That we speak well of other Christians, that we don't highlight their faults. We've all got plenty of faults. But commendation is Paul's method. And it's what these people did with regard to the 45,000, in an incredible expression of unity, commended the 5,000. David, there in Psalm 16, describes other believers as the excellent of the earth. The best. The best on the planet. It's good to speak well of the ones of whom God speaks well. And they did. we can see from this list too there was a division of activity and various roles are highlighted amongst all the names are highlighted there there's priests and there's Levites and there's valiant men and there's gatekeepers and there's singers and there's just a whole list of people serving God in all kinds of different ways in the city and their roles are highlighted and as we read through their names. All that that is said about them is that each of them is doing something. I mean, isn't it? That's that's the whole point about the list. Uh, It's a striking detail about the list that all of them is doing something. There's no one not doing anything. And, of course, that reminds us, doesn't it, that we've all been, if we're Christians, we've all been given a spiritual gift that was given to us at our moment of conversion. I mean, Paul says that. To each of us, grace was given. Whatever that gift was, and some of them are more public than others. And as we progress in the Christian life, it's not so much that a person has a gift. What becomes clear is that the person is the gift. And, and their character and their actions just reveal this gift as they do it. So some become encouragers. Some become exhorters. Some become known for their prayer lives. They just find it easier than others to do it. It's a gift that God has given them, like George Muller and plenty others. There's a whole range of these gifts. They're all all like instruments in an orchestra. And when they're all played the way they should be played, a sweet sound goes up to heaven. And on top of that, there's natural talents. And they're not the same thing. But all of them, to be used in building up the city, and it's good when that happens. The fifth thing I want us to mention is uh, what I have called Decidable Anonymity, if that's how you pronounce it. This list of names, I suppose it's It would be an unfair question to ask us to stand up and repeat some of them. It might be an unfair question to ask us to stand up to say one of them. I suppose it's a bit like walking past a war memorial, isn't it? We might stop and look at the name. and just move on and that, that's not a, that's not a sign of ingratitude but it is a reminder that we are made to be forgotten all these names they're forgotten well forgotten on earth Their task, as was the task in the war memorial, is to make sure that others had a future. That's our task. Our task is not really to look back. That's just a form of escapism. Our task is to make sure that there is a future for those who are going to live in the future. That's what these people did, wasn't it, as they made their way into the city. There would be people there a hundred years on because they did what they did at this particular time. And that's what we're doing today. A hundred years from now, nobody will remember us. But that doesn't matter, does it? What matters is that the city is flourishing. Anonymous, anonymousness, easier to pronounce, is very desirable. And then lastly, there is this divine awareness. What do we have here in this list of names? It is a city register. It is a bit like Psalm 87, isn't it? Where God writes their names in the city. There in verse 6, born in Zion, God will enter in the people's register. When these 5,000 went into the city, then these words could start to be fulfilled, wouldn't it? God knew their names. He wrote them down. I suppose it is striking to imagine that all these people who dedicated themselves to serve God, to go into the earthly city, they're all now in the heavenly city. And they've all got their place. God took note of just of their names, but of their actions. As it says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16, Then they that feared the Lord, they met together and thought about his name. The Lord hearkened and heard it, and took out his book of remembrance and wrote their name down. The reason he wrote it down was because in the ancient world, if a king wanted to reward someone for serving him and since his mind wasn't capable of remembering everything he would write it down and say that so-and-so had to be rewarded for an action. You get an example of that with Mordecai in the book of Esther, where the emperor had forgotten. But it was written in the book that the Mordecai should be rewarded. And God takes that picture, or at least Malachi takes that picture and says, God writes in his book that he's going to reward those who thought upon his name. And he also writes down the date. They shall be mine in the day when I make up my jewels. And all these people here with their unusual names, there's a divine jewel that are going to be revealed publicly on the great day. And it'll be good that we are there as well. And Jesus says to us, regarding our actions, whatever you did unto the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. So these lessons are there for us, aren't they? Building the city. Maybe some of us are not in the city. There's only one way into it, to ask the gatekeeper to go to Jesus and trust in him and become members of his city, shall we pray.